0: Okay, please turn to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 2, verses 36 to 38. I'll be reading Luke 2, verses 36 to 38. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him the baby Jesus, to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Lord, may we become more and more like Anna. Yearning. Yearning. And waiting for redemption in all aspects of our lives during this time, on behalf of others, for ourselves, and for the consummation of what You purchased with Your blood. And therefore, help us this morning. See, feel what You wrought in Simeon and Anna. To the glory of the name of Jesus and to the participation of us sinners in this glory we pray, amen. My plea this morning is that we would devote ourselves to yearn for God to cause us to flourish bear fruit more than ever in 2011 like Anna and as we saw last week in the temple in Jerusalem with the baby Jesus Simeon that we would like them long wait send your manifestation of salvation to which they got to see May we do that for our own individual lives, and this year may we do it for Sovereign Grace Fellowship. Anna and Simeon, I'm going to bring them both together this week, they are models for us in this. They're models for our daily yearning and praying for God's salvation to manifest itself in the earth. Now, the reason I say that is Luke. Think about it. He could have in the Simeon and the Anna account just said there was a guy named Simeon and by the Holy Spirit he prophesied. And there was a lady named Anna and she started proclaiming this baby as the Savior to all the people. But he did much more than that. He unfolded some characteristics about these two people. And that means, I, th- I just have to, as a, even just a Bible reader, an exegete, to say, I think we're supposed to notice something and to learn something from Anna and from Simeon. In verse 25 from last week, it says, Simeon was righteous and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him in verses 36 and 37 we read and there was a prophetess Anna the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher she was really old advanced in years having lived with her husband for seven years, probably now 20, 21 years old, from when she was a virgin. And then he died. And then, as a widow, until she was 84. Technically, actually, we're not sure. She was either 84 or 104 or 105. The Greek is just imprecise. Was it 84 more years? Which would make her about 104 105. Or is she 84? But he tells us this. See her life, and she didn't marry again, but what she did was she did not depart from the temple. It doesn't mean she lived there. It means she was constantly there, day and night, purposefully worshipping God. And she did not depart from the temple, worshipping with fasting and prayer, night and day. And so we got this picture. They're devout, righteous, Daily in the temple, Godward, fasting and praying. These two old saints woke up every day and they were radically conscious of God's word, of his promises, and their heart would move toward God on a daily basis. They were scripture saturated. We clearly saw last week with Simeon. I mean he's just Isaiah is just flowing out of him and Anna is daily and nightly petitioning That's really the word for prayer there she's fasting and she is saying God bring this promise about for at least 84 years now I want to notice one thing before we move on because in Luke chapter one in two over these last few months. There's something that has just been there. And that's the Holy Spirit. He constantly brings the Spirit up. What we saw last week, if you'll notice in verse 25, He said concerning Simeon, The Holy Spirit was upon him. In verse 26, It had been revealed <coughs> to Simeon by the Holy Spirit, that he's not going to die before he saw the Christ. In verse 27, the Holy Spirit led Simeon into the temple. And this, this is significant for, for one reason, at least for Luke, and it, is, and it is for us. And that is, I was taught early on as a Christian, and I run into Christians all the time who they tell me this, because that's what they were taught. That in the Old Testament... Before the coming of Christ, the Holy Spirit of God did not dwell within anybody. He only came upon them. So unlike us on this side of the cross, on this side of the day of Pentecost, who we have the Spirit, He dwells within us, we're filled with the Spirit, we're supposed to be filled with the Spirit, He causes new birth or regeneration. Well, that didn't happen to them in the Old Testament. And that's just not true. It is not true. David is your example. Abraham is the model of saving faith because the same Spirit who births faith this side of the cross when the preaching of the Gospel goes forth is the same faith that was birthed in Abraham or Abel or David and I can go text up text but I don't want you to do this. Just real briefly, Luke is enough. You ever heard of the book of Acts? Acts of the Apostles. Sometimes people say it should be called the Acts. Of the Holy Spirit. Same writer. And throughout in the book of Acts, his Greek phrase for, they were filled, not just upon, filled with the Holy Spirit. Five or six times when he writes Acts is the exact same phrase he's already used a few times. In chapter 1, when he said, John the Baptist, not just the Spirit will come upon, he will be filled with the Spirit. Even from his mother's womb. And then his mom, Elizabeth, it says, was filled inside with the Spirit. His dad, Zechariah, it says, was filled with the Spirit. They're born again people. Regenerated. They don't have on that side the knowledge of how God could possibly forgive their sins and save them and graciously come down and impart His Holy Spirit to them as sinners. They don't understand that. We have an understanding of that this side of the cross. It's because of Christ. But don't miss it. They are part of the eternal, universal church body of Christ as examples. Now, here's here's my real point. The fruit that we see in this text that the Holy Spirit produced in Simeon and in Anna, if you read slowly, it pops off the page. And that is, here it is, they were longing. You ever longed for something? Please let it happen. They were longing for something to happen. They had a deep trust in what they had read in Scripture and were longing for it. Verse 25 says it simply. Simeon was waiting for the comfort or the consolation of Israel. Verse 38 says of Anna, and coming up into the temple ground, at that very hour when Jesus was there with His parents and He's a baby, she began to give thanks Thanks to God. And to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Clearly, she has to be one of them. She's waiting. You promised for the redemption of Jerusalem. So, it seems that in our text, in chapter 2, Luke purposefully is doing something. He seems to purposely be saying, Look at these two people. There are characteristics about them that particularly make them candidates to recognize and see God's salvation. They were righteous. They're pursuing righteousness. Devout. There's a structure in their lives. This is what I'm about. Anna. Constantly fasted for the purpose of praying. But, why did they do that? Because they were motivated by something underneath it. A yearning for God's glory to manifest. Let your redemption come. Let the comfort you promised in Isaiah to Israel come. And then Luke says, And these two people saw it. So what I want us to see this morning is how it is that Simeon and Anna, what was going on 2,000 years ago when they saw the baby Jesus in the temple and what Luke tells us about them, they are models for us. They are people that we are to emulate. Three ways. First is this. They were yearning. They were waiting for the first coming. They were waiting for the sending and the coming of the Christ, the Messiah, the comfort of Israel. And it's very analogous to us on this side of the cross in this way. Not that we're waiting for the first coming through, the, through Mary. He's come. But if you're a believer now, then there was that first coming for you. There was that initial conversion experience that is analogous to what's going on in a temple with them. And that is this. They never would have seen, the Spirit never would have revealed to them if they were not longing or waiting and wanting to see and desire the comfort that they didn't have the redemption of jerusalem that had not yet come no one today will ever recognize jesus baby or in the gospel unless the person has this reality of yearning longing something's wrong i need him the comfort the salvation. The redemption. You do not yearn for the salvation of Jesus <coughs> unless you know you're lost. That's that's the message. It's, a person who is neck deep in eternal quicksand will not reach for the rope of the gospel of Jesus Christ if they have that that virtual reality headgear on, you know, and they're not really in quicksand as far as they know. They're just having a good time playing a football game or sword fighting or whatever they're doing. Life is good, I'm okay, you're okay. And they're really in quicksand, and they're never going to reach for Jesus the rope. Unless the deception of the heart of virtual reality is taken care of and the eyes are opened to their plight and they yearn for salvation. Desperateness. If Anna and Simeon were content, very unlike the way Luke pictures them, if they were just content, they never would have seen or recognized the Lord Jesus when his parents brought him in. Think about your own experience if you're a believer. There had to have been. And there was in one way or another. A real sense of your lostness. For me, I was, I was living in happy-go-lucky disillusionment. And then... God's mercy came and caused me to be introspective about me in the context of where did I come from and what is life. And He brought the grace of depression. He brought the grace of woe is me. I am in quicksand. I am utterly now discontented. That mercy drove me to Scripture. He does this thing different ways. And in Scripture, I saw... The Christ child who grew up and on the cross in a way I'd never seen Him, even though I heard those stories. That's the answer. There's the rope. And I yearned to be saved. And He saved me. And as we saw last week with, with Simeon's prophecy and from Isaiah, all these fulfillments from Isaiah, Jesus is and was to me, and if you're a believer, He was to you the fulfillment of Isaiah 49.13 where it says, quote, "...Sing for joy." O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted His people, and He will have compassion on the afflicted. What went on with Anna and Simeon is what goes on today when people are converted to Christ or they're not converted Christ the second way in which they are models for us is this that when we come to Christ you can just use Simeon he's holding I see your salvation the baby Jesus when we come to embrace the gospel we realize he's my Savior And you open up the book and you're in church and you hear the great news that you're now justified by faith alone, that your sins are forgiven, that is offered to you. You're to grow in this deep assurance. There's a contentedness in this sense. I'm His. He's mine. He's taking care of it. That's true. But there is also a sense in which the longing of Anna and Simeon doesn't stop but it transitions into the reality. I'm a sinner. I am saved by grace. But I still live in this unredeemed, sinful, broken world. I still carry about within my soul sinfulness and sinful acts. I still live in a mortal, death-doomed, unredeemed body. And I, like Anna and Simeon, are waiting. Are waiting for the Savior to come. Back. A second time. Hebrews 9.28 simply puts it this way. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him and the apostle Peter turns that reality of the Christian into the command of the Christian life in 1st 1 Peter 1.13 therefore after laying out God saving you in verses 1 to 12, he says, Therefore, Christian, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, here's the command set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, at the second coming of Jesus Christ. He's saying the power every day for marriage, for raising children, for being church members, for work, for everything that we deal with in this world, the power for Christians is the Messiah's second coming. It is our hope, longing, waiting Anchored in that while we work and deal with the present down here. They, Anna and Simeon, have much to teach us at Sovereign Grace. The third and therefore, and the final way in which they are models for us, is that we live between God sending the comfort, the consolation of Israel... And his second coming, where he will finish what he only began. We live in the time of tension. As believers, that means we have been spiritually resurrected from the dead. And yet, though something's changed, we have desires for the Christ, we have this taste as the Scriptures to taste and see the Lord. He is good to me. All of that is a miracle. And yet, we are still sinful. And we live in this Romans 7, at times, torment. In other words, we are in a battle against our flesh. That's the New Testament way of saying against our inborn Sinful remaining nature. We're in a battle, most particularly, to taste more and more of communion with God instead of love of the world. And that is done in the New Testament, particularly in the context Of the body of Christ. He saves people and calls them together. He calls them His church. In other words, we are to pursue being more and more like Anna and Simeon. Sanctification. Pursue it. Simeon was righteous. That's what that means. God, work more righteousness, acts of good doing, obedience of faith. He was devout of devotion vertically to you where I'm desperate pursuing God daily as Anna with fasting and prayer. In other words, Jesus came. He's there in the temple. He's 40 days old. And He grew up and He came in order to purchase with His blood the church. The place where God has preordained to glorify His name between Christ's work on the cross and His second coming. The church, not you alone. The church as the lighthouse of comfort to a lost and a dying world. We who have been born again now in between these two times have been destined to live between the two comings of Christ. It's a time when we are called to desire more. And more, the glory of God through His Son that was there in the temple that day to be glorified in our lives through the church. We are to desire more and more for Jesus Christ to be lifted up in the world in the context of the local church. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 3, that we are to, quote, bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made. No. And so, part of the Christian life is to pray. It is to beseech. It is to petition. God wants us, who God, say it again, who is sovereign, who has preordained salvation, wants us, because He preordained this too, To ask Him to glorify His name by spreading the glory of His Son in the earth. To pray as Anna and Simeon for the consolation of lost and dying souls that are out there in the South Bay area right now in the year 2011. The world needs Many more local churches. Trust me. We can use so many more. We're a drop in the bucket. All of these, how many thousands of us are at local churches just in this state. It's a drop in the bucket. And let me just say something. The the motivation, the heart... And the strategizing of more and more organizations that are existing today like Acts 29 that exist for this purpose they strategize, think about how can we better do what? Planting more and more local churches is a God-glorifying mission. And that brings us to Sovereign Grace Fellowship. We are Technically, still a church plant. In other words, we're not a church that was planted and then got established. And now, hey, we got lots of people to send out and money to send out and plant other churches. We're not there. According to church plant experts, they would call us still in the process of planting this church. Particularly because we are not financially self-supportive. See, the luxury that a lot of church plants have is that they're sent out by larger churches who send them out and that pastor and a team, not just there, but they might send them with 30 or 40 or 50 people. And then they will finance that plant for a year or two or three. The light's got to get turned on somehow. Salary's got to get paid somehow. Insurance has to get bought somehow. So they would do that. Now, we here did not have that luxury, but there were five of us, that I think for years kind of yearned and looked and, and just became convinced. We think God wants us to start what we would be about, the particular values and purposes for Sovereign Grace Fellowship. Now, what I hope that we want is that the roots of this local church would go deeper and more solid so that it would be here in the South Bay Area in the next generation. So what I'm doing, and I talked with Marcelo with this, I am calling us for the first three months of this year, one day a week, to fast and to pray for Sovereign Grace Fellowship. Now, to pray very particularly on that fast and pray day, this. First, God, give us wisdom for yourself, for the leadership. Give us wisdom on how we may bear more fruit in our lives and loving others and preaching the gospel, meeting practical needs and preaching the gospel. And then, particularly, Lord, <clears throat> will you send to us four or five new family units to covenant with us here It's Sovereign Grace in 2011? I say it particularly that way. I don't mean some churchgoers, I mean covenant people. This is my home. God's planning me here. And I say family units because it could be a single person or a family unit is a married couple with kids or no kids or what. So pray, it's a little bite. God, would you do this in 2011? Let's take Anna as a model. She's an old woman. And I think we can say that from this text, she is not in love with the world. She's always in the place of worship. She lives in Jerusalem. She's always going to the temple, fasting and praying. She's radically heavenly minded. She's got promises in Scripture. She wants to see God's glory that He promised be poured out and to come. And she, according to the text, is there worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day now fasting simply means going without food for a while that's why we have breakfast yeah you ever think about that you go 13 hours without food a lot if you ate at six seven you don't get up till six or seven now you're gonna have break fast you're gonna break your fast that's not what we mean Fasting means skipping a meal, or two or three, or it can be a three-day fast without food. Maybe usually with water, etc. You can all kinds of fasts. Well, you're going to have to decide on that. For the Jews in the first century, the most common fast was from sunup to sundown. Down dinner time, eat for fasting and prayer. Now, just for a moment, we read in the New Testament about the Christian church. In chapter 13, verses 2 to 3, it says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. In chapter 14, verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now, I don't, maybe you've fasted before, maybe you haven't. Fasting is not... Some magical manipulation of God. Some little thing I turned and look at that. God's gonna be really pleased. I, I I starved myself and I got hungry and I resisted and woo. It's not what fasting is. Fasting biblically is a tool to help us put down our worldly appetites in order to hunger more for God. And more, in particular, for what we're asking Him to do. So just think of it. This is how it's worked in my life when I fast and pray. Why, Joe, fast? And you're going to have to figure out how you do that on that day. I skip breakfast and lunch. I go all day long. And when you do that, you know what happens? You start to dream of In-N-Out Burger. You know, and depending on what you're doing, because most of our lives are still going on, it's just, oh, should I, should I? And you, okay, that's, this is, this is why that's good. That's what it's for. Because you will constantly be reminded you're hungry. And that's to remind you, pray. God, I am in nowhere Do I hunger for you or do I actually hunger for the glory of Jesus to spread through sovereign grace like I hunger for a hamburger right now? And that's one way. Fasting is a wonderful tool for that little short, brief period of time once a week. It will cause you to pray 137 times. Some of your prayers, you might spend 14 seconds or 45 seconds. Fasting is a tool not to manipulate God but to remind you and to beg for God to make me more hungry and desirable for the answer of this particular prayer. So what I'm asking be real particular here is that on Monday of each week or Tuesday now here we go here's the princess they really don't work for me if they really don't pick another day. But in general, take Monday or Tuesday of each week through January, February, and March. What's that leave? It's like 12 more or something, 11 or 12 of those days. Take one of those and skip a meal that day or two meals. You'll have to decide on that. Two meals will mean you don't eat, you don't eat till dinner time. And so throughout that day, you'll have that blessing of I'm hungry. Oh, sorry, I'm supposed to pray. I'm hungry, I'm supposed to pray. God, do I ever hunger for you? Anywhere near I hunger for food? (sighs) That's something for us all pray to pray about. And see what he does. Now, depending on people have different medical situations, okay? If that's the case, and for some reason you're not supposed to, you can fast TV, you can fast something. Do something that's gonna help you pray on those days for me I do drink black coffee and I drink water you have to decide others may say I can fast food but I'm gonna need a glass of juice in the morning or in the afternoon or something and if that's what you settle on settle on it but you want this to be a tool to pray and so what we're specifically praying for as sovereign grace is God send to us In 2011, four to five new covenant family units to us and make us more fruitful in our lives and as a church. And that means fruit of the Spirit. That means loving others. That means meeting needs, people that are hungry or hurting and going out of the way. That means when you don't want to love by giving up your time or money, or service. You say, God, make me that way. Now, if you ask me, (coughs) Joe, if we do this, and we pray fervently for God to answer our prayers, does that mean He's going to do it? I don't know. If it's His will, to do it, He will do it. But, I do know this. Anna, in our text, shows us that it is spiritually healthy to fast and to petition the Lord to glorify His name, even through Sovereign Grace Fellowship. Let's go. let's pray. Father, I pray that, first of all, You make this once-a-week fasting and prayer of us at Sovereign Grace fruitful for each. May there be testimonies that flow of what You're doing in our lives. And Lord, we begin now and ask, would You send four or five family units to covenant with us here at Sovereign Grace. And just do that in 2011. We ask to the glory of the name of Jesus to putting down the roots of Sovereign Grace fellowship deeper in the South Bay area so that expositional preaching churches may flourish more to the glory of His holy name. Amen.